You know, as we approach this passage, it's important to keep in mind it's part of a longer discourse and Jesus is merely hours away from his death. And he alludes to that here. So I'm not burying the lead. Uh, whenever you look at like, what is he intimating? What is he alluding to? It is the cross and his resurrection. And when we look at the text itself, it starts off, you can see that Jesus makes this assertion in verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Right? He's, he's with them right then, and then he's saying, it's not going to be that long, and you're not going to see me anymore. And then a little bit after that, you, you will see me. Now, one thing that you could, you could say a couple of things about verse 16. One of those is that it marks a transition in this long discourse. Uh, a transition away from the paraclete, right? The Holy Spirit, this, this other one who would come to help. Uh, he's talked about that a lot. He's talked about it five separate times. He's finished up with that, but he's going from that as an emphasis to more directly talking about his departure. Jesus has let them know, I, I'm going away and where I'm going, you're not going to be able to follow. And that's permeated throughout. It's featured throughout, but he's going to answer that a lot more directly here. So there's this transition from that thing to this, we've got to grapple with the leaving of Jesus. And the disciples don't get it. Another thing we can say about verse 16 is it sounds almost like a riddle. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. Uh, riddles featured in ancient literature. So, you know, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'd think about Samson's famous riddle. He had you know, Samson's a tough guy, right? So he encounters a lion. You know, if you encountered a lion, I encountered a lion, you would be breakfast. Samson encounters the lion, he kills the lion, right? Kills the lion with his bare hands. And then he comes along later and he notices that in the carcass of the lion, these bees had set up a hive and so he ate uh, honey out of it. And, you know, there's a context, I won't give you the whole background, but his little riddle is this. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Right? What is it? And of course, they found out. Uh, or if you've read Oedipus Rex, the Sphinx gives a riddle. He says this, what? Walks on uh, uh, four legs, or goes on four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three legs in the evening. evening. And the answer, of course, is a man or a human being. So it, this verse sounds like that a little bit anyway, but what Jesus says here is not properly a riddle. He's not hiding the ball. You know, Jesus isn't chatting with his guys. You know, if you, my dad was a great, uh, you know, he liked to tease a lot. I know, shocking, right? You know, but uh, he liked to tease a lot. And so he was one of those dads who would have something in his hand, you know, like, hey, can you get it? And then pull it away. And like, can you get it? Oh, you're too slow or something like that. Or tease mercilessly. Jesus is not doing that with the disciples. He's not like, psych, you're close, not even good enough. He's not doing that. He's not playing you're getting warmer or being cute or enigmatic. Jesus is doing something else. He's being basic. There's a difference. And if the disciples need anything in their mental space at this point, it's the basics. That's all Jesus is doing. We're together. 
It's not going to be that much longer, and we're not going to be, but then you're going to see me again. You're not going to see me, and then you will see me. And he's alluding to what's ahead. You have to remember that that, uh, how, how he's talking about this is a way that will set them up to see what's to come. So does it work? You look at verses 17 through 19, and what you get is the disciples' confusion. It's like, if you register anything out of these verses, they don't get it. He said it in many ways. He said it in different, uh, uh, the same thing in different uh, approaches, and they clearly don't get it. They, they hear what Jesus says, and whether it's Jesus going to the Father, that's one of the things that they point out. You know, Jesus says what he says in verse 16, and they all look at each other and they start chatting. Like, do you get it? I don't get it. Talking about going to the Father, and that echoes back to verse 10, or even chapter 14, verse 28. Uh, all, in John, all through John, Jesus is sent from the Father, and now we're at this critical point, and He says, it's not long, and I'm going back to my glory. I'm returning to the Father. Or this, not, or not seeing Him and then seeing Him, I don't get that. What, what does a little while mean? You know, a little while this and a little while that. And so you get to the end of verse 18, and they just, the summary of it is really plain. What's he talking about? Like, I don't understand what he's talking about. And Jesus wants them to get it, because in verse 19, he brings it up. Isn't this what you've asked? Look at verse 19 with me again. He, he knew that they wanted to ask him, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by this? And so he lays it out to explain it. Now, but you, you have to ask, if Jesus wants them to get it, why does he approach it like this? You have to keep in mind, he's been clear about what's, uh, what's to come. Um, but it's so completely unexpected that they don't have a good category for, you know, who he is and, and what he's doing. So they didn't have a category in their minds for the Christ uh, coming and being with him, only to turn around and die. Um, you know, he's supposed to win big. Or they didn't, you know, resurrection is totally out of their sphere of experience. People die, but you don't walk away from that. Um, you know, so they're used to that aspect of it, so they don't get it. So why is Jesus approaching it like this? I, I think one of the ways that might help us to understand it, have you ever really had something difficult, very hard, to explain to a small child, right? If you, if you have little kids, uh, or if, if you have in the, in the past, you know, had, had little kids, and it might be something like this where, you know, you need to move away. All their friends, their whole world is where you are, but you need to move away because the work is there that's way outside their sphere, and they don't think about it, right? So they don't, it's hard for them to get it. I remember when I was, uh, I was probably, probably older than three, but I was about four or five years old, and my Aunt Sadie died. And, you know, I mean, huge loss. Aunt Sadie was this sort of matriarchal figure in a way on my, on my dad's side. And uh, she turned out, you know, I didn't know anything about this. I was living in the world under the adult world as a child, right? And my Aunt Sadie had cancer and she had battled uh, it for quite a while. And I saw her one time before she died. And we went to their place outside of Ponca City, and we go into her. But this time, she wasn't pulling a blackberry or a peach cobbler out of the oven. She wasn't barking at my Uncle Lex, you know, being funny and 
giving him the business and all of that. None of that was going on. She was back in her bedroom. I don't think I'd ever been back in their bedroom before. And she was lying down. You could tell she was weaker. And they brought those kids. Uh, we didn't really know this, didn't really get it, but to say goodbye. And then we got the news at some point, and my folks told me, how do you tell a little kid who's never really grappled with death and the concept of it, this is what's going on? What do you do? Well, one thing you do is you simplify, and Jesus is doing that here, right? That we're here, you're not going to see me, then you will see me. Simple. Another thing that you do is you try to tell them things that even if they don't get it now, in the moment, they can, as, as they go along, they can look back, remember, and then put the pieces together and make sense of it, right? Something that will help them understand later in life, and Jesus is doing that. He's saying things now so that they'll come back to it later and the light will come on. This isn't new, by the way, if you, little survey, when preachers say little survey, you have to watch out, but this will be a little survey, Okay. You back up to chapter 13, verse 7, and he's done this before. Jesus answered, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Or uh, ahead in verse 19 of chapter 13, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Again, chapter 14, verse 29, and now I have told you before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe, and even in the chapter we looked at at the very beginning of it, but I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. There's an awful lot that Jesus is doing, just like you would with a child. You would simplify, but you would also say things that right there in the moment, they're not going to get, but once it all takes place and they can make sense of it, they can come back and go, oh, I get it now, all the pieces fit. So Jesus is simply being basic. Um, how does he answer their confusion? Well, you know, we get this answer in verse 20 is, uh, we might call it the explanation. And at first blush, it looks like a restatement of verse 16. And in a way it is. In a way it is. He's, he's really reasserting the same thing. But there is a difference. Look at verse 20 with me again. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. There's a difference. Did you catch it? See, earlier in verse 16, it's, it's not seen and then seen, right? You're not going to see me and then you will see me. In verse 20, it's sorrow and then joy. That's the distinction. Now, they're related, Helpful clues here about Jesus' great mission. One of the things that you can pull away from that is that their joy and the world's joy is opposite. What the world wants is what is crushing to the disciples. You might even say vice versa, right? The world is going to rejoice at the thing that you're going to grieve over. But another thing is, it's, is this. It's not just the sense that it's sorrow and then joy, like there's a sequence it's that their sorrow turns into joy. There's a difference there. Um, it's, it's, you might say it's a nuance. Now, there is a sequence. The sorrow is going to come first, and then what's going to follow is joy. So there is a sequence to the sorrow and joy. But the disciples don't get that joy just because they got over their sorrow, and their, and their sorrow just kind of 
you know, ebbed, it kind of died down, and now they have the capacity for joy. That's not. Look at what he says. You will be sorrowful at the end of verse 20, but your sorrow, it's your sorrow that will turn into joy. How does that happen? Right? The, the disciples don't get the joy just because they get over the grief. The disciples get joy because the very thing that grieved them is going to be their occasion for joy. That's what they're going to celebrate. The cross is the thing that devastates them, but the cross is going to be their occasion to celebrate. It's the cross that's the occasion for the resurrection. No cross, no resurrection. Then he gives an analogy. You know what an, an analogy is, right? Uh, this thing is like that thing. Right? You, you put them side by side so you use the one thing to help you understand the other thing. And he uses an analogy that uh, you know, most men don't use, he, uh, the analogy of a woman giving birth to a child. Now, why? Why does he... Why would you give an analogy, and why would you give an analogy like that? Well, here's why. It's to answer an objection. And the objection is something like this. That's not how it works. That's a, it doesn't fit that way. You, you don't, it doesn't work where you go, sorrow leads you into joy. It's not my experience. You know what sorrow does? Sorrow makes you sad. You know what sorrow does? Grief is something that you have to really work to overcome. You can hold your grief, but there are these, like you have to go through a process just to kind of normalize your life after you go through some devastating grief. So it doesn't work that way. And the answer is, sometimes it does. Well, how? Well, let me give you an example. A woman giving birth. So in verse 21... This might sound obvious to, I don't know, roughly half of you in the room. He says this, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. A woman gives birth to a child, it's hard. It's labor, there's anguish, but it gives way to joy. Right? That very thing is what leads to this celebration of a child, this great gift from God that you get another human being, this miracle that occurs. Sometimes sorrow is the occasion for joy. And in verse 22, he says, it's like that for you, you disciples. Look at verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, right now, it's the hour. Um, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Uh, there is an anguish now. You're going to lose Jesus. Uh, he says to them, you know, but this is the very thing that's going to give way to joy. It's going to emerge in new life and something that can't be taken away from them. And then finally in the passage, he points to this coming paradigm shift. Uh, it starts off in verse 23. He says, in that day, uh, in that day you will dot, dot, dot. What does he mean by, what's that time sequence there? Well, he's talking about after the resurrection, uh, after this time from you don't see me to you do see me, after this time from there's sorrow and now there's rejoicing, now there's joy, once all that happens, and that's going to be after his resurrection, the effect on it creates this great paradigm shift for them. In a way, it's very difficult for us to relate to, even looking back. See, you see, their union with Jesus so totally changes their relationship with the Father, it shows up everywhere. But it also shows up in this very specific way 
um, because it's mission critical, it shows up in prayer. Now, they ask Jesus for things and they follow Jesus around and they pray, right? But they, in their minds, those aren't like connected, not, not the way we would think. Like if they're praying, they're praying. If they're asking Jesus for something, they're asking Jesus for something. But he's going back to the Father. So he says it this way to him. Again, verse 23. In that day, you'll ask nothing of me. Now, you have to keep in mind that their lives for three years are asking things of Jesus. How do you get things done? Uh, who's the problem solver? As a matter of fact, you might even say that whenever they pray, that's sort of in the abstraction. Uh, if you're really going to get something done, something godlike done, you're going to talk to Jesus. Because, right, all the things that they'd seen and all the things that the, he's done. But he's talking about a big change. You're not going to ask anything of me in that day. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, in the immediate context, he's talking to these disciples who are going to represent Jesus in the world following his death, burial, and resurrection. So they pray and they follow Jesus, but those are kind of separate. And he says, listen, there's going to be a coming day that you're going to pray in my name. Matter of fact, whatever you ask, the Father's going to do. You pray in my name. Your access to the Father, Jesus says, is going to come through me. In your prayer, your standing with God is my standing with God. Now, again, it's hard for us to relate to that just because of the, the, the experience they had in following Jesus around. What do you make of asking anything in Jesus' name, that standing? Um, I remember my first professional interview. I'd had jobs as a, you know, as a kid and whatnot. You go in and you do the interview and, and, and that kind of thing. It's hard, you know, you're nervous and every, all that stuff that goes with it. But uh, before my first big interview as a professional, you know, as a lawyer guy, uh, I had a, one as an intern and I bombed. I mean, it was a, you get through your first year of law school, and in the second year, everybody goes for internships. And there were two, and only two, that I wanted. And the first one, I bombed. I mean, it was awful, awful, awful. And so we couldn't text back then, so Kara worked the swing shift, and she, was, she called me from the hospital on her break. She's like, how did it go? I bombed. And I sounded, you know, I sounded kind of cheery about it now because it's, you know, it's in the past. My sorrow turned to joy. But anyway, so I, I bombed. And so I was like, I bombed. And she goes, no, no. You know how, like, you tell somebody, like, how'd you do on the test? Like, oh, I did awful, and they get a 97. Like, oh, you sandbagged. You don't get a 97 and not know that you did pretty good, right? And so anyway, I was like, no, I bombed. She's like, oh, no, you did better. You know, you interview well and all that. You did better than you think. No, no, I didn't. And so she got home about midnight when she usually got home, and uh, our apartment was on the third floor. Heard her come in, and uh, she walked in, and we had this two-bedroom apartment, and then the, the spare bedroom was like office, where I did law school stuff and all that. And from my interview, she saw my shoes, and my pants, and my jacket, and my shirt, and my tie, and uh, forget this, but I chewed back then, chewed. Copenhagen, and so I was, I was in my underwear in front of, sorry, I, in front of the computer uh, playing solitaire or Minesweeper, because those are the games that we had, uh, for hours. And Kara looked in there and she goes, oh, you did bomb. You know? 
and I did. I bombed. I was the worst interview I ever had. Anyway, so then, I, you know, later I graduate law school and all that, and I have my real interview, my first professional interview. And I'd sent out resumes and all of that stuff, but it, this was, uh, you know, it was a who I knew thing. Spokane County called, prosecutor, prosecutor's office. And I went in for my quote interview, and let me tell you how it went. Remember, we're talking about what does it mean to ask in Jesus' name. Uh, I go into my interview, my quote-unquote interview, and uh, the prosecuting attorney's name was Jim, and he said, you know, hi, you know, welcome, nice to meet you, all the niceties, you know, 30 seconds. I said, you know Ron? I'm not going to use his last name. Yeah, I know Ron. I worked with him at the U.S. Attorney's Office as an intern, wrote dozens of briefs for him, great guy, brilliant lawyer. And he goes, yeah, he speaks very highly of you. Uh, he, as you know, he used to work here, and he's basically a legend in the office. And what he says still carries a lot of weight here. When can you start? <laughs> that was my interview. I interviewed in Ron's name, in other words, right? I got the job on Ron's merit, not my merit. I had standing there on the basis of my relationship with Ron, not anything that I had done, right? Jesus' credibility with the Father becomes their credibility with the Father. They are going to be representing Jesus on the mission that he gives them to share the gospel. And whenever they pray, it's not like the Father's going, yeah, but you're, you know, you're not Jesus. Like, no. You belong to Jesus. You share his agenda. You're on mission with him. You'll be heard. Right? You come with his standing. You share his mission. What you ask, that'll be granted. All right. So that's the text. You, uh, Jesus alludes to what's to come. Uh, the cross will come, and he will overcome. The resurrection will follow that. Now, what do you do with a passage like this? This one little piece out of a big, long discourse. You could draw a lot of theological uh, insights, potentially. You could talk about the atonement. Like I said, he alludes to that, and uh, what a paradigm shifter uh, that is that comes through that. Talk about the atonement. You can talk about the nature of prayer. Talk about the character of God or the power of God or the nature of the fallen world who's so opposite what God's agenda is. You know, in John, it's the world and there's God. But I want to focus on one thing in, in particular here, because I think there's a really good opportunity to do it, and it's the nature of joy. It's like a cue. Uh, it's like the nature of joy, of Christian joy. And Jesus has already talked about this. So, you know, here we are in chapter 16. And if you were to back up to chapter 15, he said something in 1511. So all these things I'm talking to you about, I've said to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus has already broken the ice on the issue of joy. You know, the topic of joy. You ever think about this? Jesus has an agenda of joy for you. Do you know that? Is that Donda, has it occurred to you that that's the case? And not a little thing, not just a thing that sort of softens the blows and bandages the wounds, though it does do this. It's this thing that totally fills you up. Hey, listen, I'm talking about this so that you can have my joy and that your joy will be what? Like halfway or full? Like running over type stuff. I got to thinking about this, and I, 
I don't know what you think, but I, I think this observation is pretty obvious. I think we suffer a deficit of joy. I don't think it's usual or common to meet somebody and your impression of them would be something like this. What a joyful person. Um, why? As a matter of fact, I don't think it's the norm in the world, but I don't think it's the norm in the church either. Why? You live in about as good a place in time as any. Do you know that? Uh, kings don't have what you and I do today. Um, you know, you could read about some of the great uh, leaders in history and all the things that they had access to you and uh, or access to, and uh, you have better. I mean, probably the car you drive and the house you live in and the food you eat and all that stuff, what your opportunities are. If you're just to look statistically, the average person in the U.S. where we live in this time and place, uh, in terms of worldwide wealth, you're probably a one percenter. You know that? You're a one percenter. And yet, unhappy. It's as though material things can't make you happy or something. Isn't that weird? Seems like it would work. And you know what people do with that is they get all the stuff that'll make them happy. And when that doesn't work, they do this genius thing. They try to get more stuff. It's the same philosophy, right? They just double down. And they, they continue to confirm uh, what the early test results were, is that it won't work, that it, it won't make you happy. Why are so many sub-joyful? When Jesus points out in 1511, listen, I want my joy to be in you. I want you to have my joy, and I want your joy to be full. It's like, like you're maxed out, like you only have so much capacity for joy, and he's put as much joy in there as you could possibly have. You couldn't hold anymore. You've got that much. You don't have any more capacity for it. It would be impossible because of your limitations for God to give you any more joy. That's the kind of joy he's talking about. Now, why not? Why do we live this sub-joy existence? I think there's one answer. I'm going to give you two answers to that. But I think we, the first one, is only one, but we think it's the only one. So we think the first answer is the only answer, and that's not true. And the first answer is this. Why, why do we struggle with joy? Because the world is severe and life is hard. It doesn't matter the time and place you live. Even here. People get sick. People get brokenhearted. Even here. You have an expiration date. Even here. Right? It's very powerful. The, the world is severe and life is hard. Uh, we always carry heartache, don't we? You get to where you reach a certain age and every day has heartache in it. I've got mine. I've got mine every day. Uh, every hour, as a matter of fact. But we act like this is the entire answer. It's not the entire answer. There's more to it than this. The world is severe and life is hard. Here's the second thing. It's so critical why do we operate in a sub-joyful way? You've got to have ears to hear this. Because we set our hearts on less than what Jesus offers. We want the lesser things. There's an old Christian band called Jars of Clay, and one of their songs, I like, it's a simple song, but one of their songs is about praying to the God of the lesser things. Um, even if we use the greater God, the only God is the means to those lesser things, right? Um, those things don't really give you joy. They can't do it. They, they only have the capacity to do what they can do. So say you get, I'm, like I'm a truck guy. I don't have a truck, which may be why I'm a truck guy. I love trucks. 
you know, growing up where I did, that's the ideal. Like, if you're going to be a real man, you know, maybe you don't use your truck, but it'd be nice if you needed to have, you know, that you'd have a truck like real men. It turns out that after you have a truck for a while, even if it's a really, really, really nice truck, it's just a truck. It's just a thing. You move into a house, it's your dream house. Just a house, you still have to live there. Uh, there's this line from Lonesome Dove that I love when uh, Gus is talking to Lori and she just wants to move to San Francisco. And in her mind, San Francisco, if they make it out there, it would just be so great. And he gives her this little warning. Be careful about wanting something too much. Life in San Francisco, still just life. Um, it's a constant temptation to think that this lesser thing will give me the ultimate thing. Oh, I just want kids. I just, I want this relationship. I just want to make a certain amount of money. I just want this job. I just want those things. Uh, even if it's good, that a lesser thing can only give you what it can give you. You, know, you come to the place that you realize that, that whatever that you aspire to, it could be a good thing to aspire to, even if it's good. At the end of the day, it can only give you what it can give you. John Newton, who the author of Amazing Grace, uh, told this story one time, and this is a little spin on it, but he said, suppose he's given this picture for you to think about. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate, and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. He's got just a mile to go, and he's coming into his everything. He's got a little trouble, and he can't overcome it. Our troubles are the broken carriage and a long walk, and we forget what we're coming into. Uh, we make the lesser things the ultimate thing, and the lesser things can't deliver. Never have been able to, and you won't be the exception, and I won't either. So how do we understand Christian joy? Let me give you three things about it. Uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Uh, the first is that when it comes to Christian joy, is that it overcomes the deepest sorrow. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. In the immediate context, they're going to lose, lose Jesus. Now, now listen, uh, Jesus has been their identity, He's been their calling, He's been their answer, their world, their truth, all of that. And weep and lament are, are these two words that whenever you put them together, it's always grief over a death, the ultimate loss, the final loss, the loss of everything, the loss of meaning, of hope and future and your sense of self. And what Jesus says is, yep, you're going to go through exactly that but your sorrow is going to turn into joy. Not something else, not joy will happen apart from it, but it's the sorrow itself that's going to turn into joy. Uh, God will take the bad and He'll turn it to good. There are deep sorrows in life, inevitable, unavoidable. You have them in your future, deep sorrows. You have heartbreak in your future. Christian joy has the power to overcome them all. See, for the Christian, every, every trouble you have is temporary. You, you also know that you can trust yourself in the hands of the Father, that He'll use them all for your good, all for your good and His glory. It overcomes sorrow, every one of them. 
The second feature is that it's not vulnerable to the world's opposition. You see in verse 22, uh, you have sorrow now, he says, I'll see you again, but your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. It can't be taken away from you. Let me ask you this question. I know we're at the end, but I want you to think. What do you have in your life that can't be taken from you? Do you hear the Jeopardy music? Dun, 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 dun. What do you have in your life that cannot be taken from you? Answer, not much. Not much. Jesus in Matthew 6 warned about this. Location is everything. Where do you put your treasure? He said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, moss, rust, destroy, thieves break in and steal it. Anything on earth, right, it's vulnerable. It's a very fragile treasure. You're not going to be able to keep it, in other words. You're always trying to safeguard it. You'll try to hold it. As a matter of fact, even if moth don't get to it and rust doesn't get to it and a thief doesn't get to it, you'll actually lose your power, your capacity to hold it, even if somebody else doesn't take it away. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Moths can't get to it. Rust won't get to it. Thieves can't get to it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus warns us about this fragile treasure. Watch out what you hold on to. You'll always be poised for loss. Just about everything you have, you can lose. Either it gets ruined or it gets taken or you lose your capacity to hold it, except a certain kind of treasure. And he says at the end of verse 22, nobody has the power to take from you the joy that I'm going to give you. Uh, this can't go bad. You don't have a deal like that in your life. It can't go bad. It can't be taken. Christian joy doesn't suffer the same vulnerability, the same fragility that the world's joy does or the world's version of it. And then the third is that it's bound up, Christian joy is, in fellowship with God. You know, you get to the end of it, he's talking about your joy being full, but it's in the context of prayer. True joy doesn't come from the God of the lesser things. God is not just like a means to wealth or whatever your fill in the blank is. What do you really want? Oh, I want the thing. Uh, the real joy is this. You get God himself. You were made for God. And you can't put anything else in the place that only uh, uh, God belongs and, and still get what you need. So at the end of verse 24, it says, Ask and you, re you will receive that your joy may be full. The real joy is that you get God himself. And it's not the lesser things. It's the in my name things. Now you might go, if you're honest, some of you, you might say, well, that's not what I want. I don't want God himself. I want the things that maybe God would, would give me. Well, in, th in that case, let me just be super honest with you. Uh, I've been super honest with you so far, just to be clear, just to set the record straight. But if you go, that's not what I want. I don't want God himself. Then you want a lesser thing to be the ultimate thing, and it will never be that. Or you want a dying thing to be an eternal thing, and it will never be that. We're talking about Christian joy. So you have to have an appetite for things that don't die. Do you? You have to have an appetite for things that remain. Do you? Something to note about those three, right? That it, whatever your trouble is, this is the kind of joy that overcomes it. Uh, whatever you're going through, this is the kind of joy that can't be threatened by the world. 
Whatever you, whatever you have in this, this is about being what you were made to be, created to be. It's about having a relationship with God and knowing Him. What do you say about those three things? Well, one is that those things are made possible and secured only on the basis of what Jesus will do. It's His death that will answer your sin. It's His resurrection that becomes your victory. It's His status with the Father that you have a share in, and it's His joy that can be yours. So let me close by asking this question, a little diagnostic for you the way we've been talking about it. Question. What is a lesser thing that I seek in the place of God in hopes that it will give me what only He can? What is my lesser thing? There's a good chance you have one. You got one? Well, better start cracking. Okay? Better start busting that aisle apart. Uh, It gets in the way of your true joy anyway. After all, Jesus is offering you joy but it's His joy, not something less. Don't want something less. Want the real thing, the real thing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this Word. Um, Seeing what great things the Lord Jesus Christ has done in answering our sin, going to the cross willingly, laying down His life for us. And... uh, and overcoming that so that we can have new life in Him and in, through union have standing with the Father. So we're so grateful for that. But out of that, the obvious manifestation of that, the obvious fruit of that should be joy. Not like little joy, not like a little compartmentalized joy, but a not fragile, overcoming everything, joy in God kind of a joy. All accomplished by Jesus. Lord, help us to appropriate that uh, by faith and with open hearts because you're great, but you're also good. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.